Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to the Just Pod. I'm your host, Emily Johnson, and we're here in Nashville at the Criminal Justice Section Spring Institute. And we just finished a panel discussion on conviction integrity units. And I've got our panelists here with me, and I'm going to go ahead and let them introduce themselves, beginning with our moderator, Justin Bingham. Hi, my name is Justin Bingham. I'm the city prosecutor for the city of Spokane, Washington. I'm a member of the Criminal Justice Section Council and someone that's been involved in criminal justice efforts in my home jurisdiction for many years. And I'm excited to be here and really excited about this panel. Hi, my name is Patricia Cummings. I am the supervisor who runs the Conviction Integrity and Special Investigations Unit in the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. Like Justin, I've been doing criminal law for a very long time. specifically doing criminal defense, prosecution, and teaching for probably over a quarter of a century. Love the area, and I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to this discussion. Yes, my name is Mark Dupree. I am the elected district attorney of Wyandotte County, which is in Kansas City, Kansas. This is my third year in office where we have created a conviction integrity unit. Excited for the panel and excited about the work of post-conviction. Hello, my name is Kevin Curtin. I'm an assistant district attorney in Middlesex County, Massachusetts. I'm a member of our Conviction Integrity Unit and also have been involved in training within the office. And uh, I've been a prosecutor for 24 years. And if you're recognizing Kevin's voice and introduction, you're not mistaken, Kevin did participate in the ICE panel in our Las Vegas meeting. So we're appreciative of him joining us again on the podcast today. So Justin, why don't you first tell us why this topic, why this issue? Last winter, our chair of the criminal justice section, Lucian Devon, reached out to me to put a panel together for the spring meeting to really showcase what prosecutors are doing to change the narrative on criminal justice reform. And the two of us discussed some different ideas. And the one that really rose to the top that we wanted to talk about at the meeting today was conviction integrity units, something that's not really what most people think that prosecutors would want to be involved in or maybe even should be involved in. So this was a topic that we felt like needed to be shared with the group and to hopefully start the conversation nationally about work that prosecutors are doing to further the idea of justice. And where's Washington at? And that's where you're from. Where's Washington State at in incorporating conviction integrity units? We're just re-examining convictions. We may be doing a lot of things right in Washington. Our lead program in King County is a model for the nation. But honestly, conviction integrity units is somewhere where we really need to step up our game. Our neighbors to the south in Multnomah County in Portland, Oregon, have a great unit. But we need to really focus in on this area. And I, I think that's really key to the conversation about criminal justice reform. Not every office and 
and not every jurisdiction is doing everything. And so we can learn from each other. Putting a panel like this together, bringing these three experts to talk about these things, that, that was the hope that I had was that we could really push other jurisdictions to maybe look at the practices differently and adopt some of these things. So it is a national movement and we do build out units all across the country. That's great. I think, Patricia, you did a great job of explaining what the origin story was of Conviction Integrity Units. Would you mind sharing that with us? I'm going to do my best to share that story in about two minutes. Essentially, the units started probably over a decade ago, and it really kind of popped up in California and in Texas. Specifically, in Santa Clara, California, they created a small unit to do this kind of work. At the same time, or around the same time, Dallas and Texas created their unit. Dallas has continuously been running that unit ever since. And in fact, I think the origin of the unit was 2007. And specifically, Dallas went down this road because Dallas had a history of the prosecutors in particular of opposing DNA requests in post-conviction matters where defendants were claiming that the DNA testing could exonerate them. But they opposed it for years. Often, appellate courts or trial courts would look at that opposition and overrule the prosecutors, and then that led to DNA testing that indeed exonerated individuals of the crimes they had been committed. So an elected district attorney in Dallas saw that and said, we need to do something about it. That's not what this is all about. And thus, the Conviction Integrity Unit was formed primarily to go back and look at the cases where the prosecutors had fought DNA testing. And to this day, Dallas has more DNA exonerations than any place in the entire country. It wasn't long after Dallas started doing that that I think the nation started paying attention. And now we find ourselves in a position where there's 45 units across the country. That's great. Thank you. I guess, Mark and Kevin, would you mind helping us understand what the the current culture is for prosecutors in embracing conviction integrity units or what some of the obstacles might be to embracing a conviction integrity unit? Absolutely. I'll tell you that some of the obstacles is, is really about informing and educating. Many people, as Patricia talked about, have been doing this for years, uh, but across the country, there are a lot of offices and a lot of prosecutors who have not and are coming into the information. And so it's about educating the criminal justice system, educating the prosecutors in your office, and more importantly, in my opinion, is educating uh, the community of what the importance of this type of work, uh, how it's important in the community. And many folks don't realize that the prosecutor has the authority and the, the discretionary powers to look at cases after the convictions are done. And so that, for us in Kansas, it took a lot of educating the community on how the prosecutor job is not done after the jury trial is complete. But according to the Supreme Court in 1935, it is to make sure that we have the right person in custody and we've convicted the guilty while at the same time, releasing those that are innocent. And so it's about educating. And that was one of the biggest obstacles. And once the people figured that out, it was like, well, yeah, why haven't you guys been doing this more often? So that's what I've noticed so far. I agree completely with Mark. Uh, Education and a change of thinking, especially among prosecutors, but also 
for everyone involved in the process is important. One of the things that I've noticed as a line prosecutor working on specific matters in which claims of actual innocence are being raised or requests for post-conviction testing are being advanced is the resistance of prosecutors to the idea that perhaps justice may not have been done in this particular case and the cognitive dissonance that is experienced by prosecutors who are told new information. It's a strange pathology, but it's something that people can get over so long as we're aware that there's very likely going to be a resistance uh, to it because prosecutors who work to convict people of crimes and prove it beyond a reasonable doubt after a long investigation, they're heavily invested, not just intellectually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as we talk about the pressures that prosecutors face, I think that's where my curiosity was peaked, was just... You know, we talk about cultural mindset, that that can be an obstacle to moving forward conviction integrity units. So, Kevin, you you touched on something that I think is important for us to keep in mind as we discuss conviction integrity units. You know, as a community, I think we're all seeking for justice. But let's put ourselves in the shoes of the prosecutor just a little bit longer. Being the person who was the prosecutor in a case and then having someone be exonerated, I think would be a really heavy burden to bear. Can you help us understand just the pressures that a prosecutor faces when they're trying a case? Yes. So prosecutors are often accused of being having limitless power and limitless resources. And that is really not the case on the ground. One of the things that we do commonly have, though, is each other. And uh, uh, so a culture can develop. And I remember this when I first started in a busy community court. And the culture was the friends we love are by our side and the foes we hate before us. I, I love that concept. And to be in the trenches with, with my fellows, and we didn't have the resources that people thought we had. And judges would suppress our evidence and disregard our second, second sentencing recommendations. And we felt like all we had uh, was each other. And we know how hard it is to get convictions in difficult cases and how much Victims and their families are invested in the process, and they rely on us. They tr- they give us their trust. They want us to to win for them. And for prosecutors, it's not a, a little problem. It's something that we you know struggle with. We want victims' families to uh, to feel like they got justice. Mm-hmm. Then once we get it, as we see it, we're going to stick by it. We're going to want to defend it. Uh, we defend convictions all the time on appeal, and there's all kinds of issues that are raised on appeal that we uh, take, uh, that we defend against. And this is a different type of a process when someone is making a claim of actual innocence now, or making a claim for post-conviction testing now. Uh, we're much more inclined to be collaborative 
than in the past. However, there's a huge resistance to undoing a conviction that may have taken you three years to get. Tough case. You really believe, as a trial prosecutor who was handling the case, you really believe you got the right guy. And so one of the things that we try to do in our county to address that is to make sure that the trial prosecutors who are actively involved in the case at any stage are not involved once a claim of actual innocence is raised. Thank you. It is important to remember that level of investment from a prosecutor's perspective. But, Mark, I think it was you that said there's one big problem when it comes to these investigations. Well, and and that's in any justice system that we're dealing with, whether it's a justice system or any system in the country, which is the the human element and humans are flawed. And so when we're looking at conviction integrity units, we have to look at them in a way to to realize it's not to beat anyone up, not to say anyone purposely incarcerated someone in the past intentionally, but more so saying, look, we're all humans and there are errors that are made. The the science has become way better uh, from 20 years ago. And now we have ways to make sure that the person that we have is the right one. I'll say dealing with victims because it's hard, right? As the elected DA, it's extremely difficult to look at a victim's family in their eye and say that we got the wrong person and we have to release this person when they believe in their heart of hearts, if you will, that you have the right one. And and you have to show them what the evidence showed because the reality is when you have the wrong person in custody, you have another victim. Mm-hmm. And now the system has victimized a innocent person, which is a human being. And the only person that wins when we don't go back and look at these cases are the persons who actually committed the crime. And they're out running around potentially doing more crime. And so it's important not only that we correct the wrong, but that in cases where we have the evidence that we pursue after the actual person who committed the crime. But let's go back to the reason why we're talking about this today and that at the end of the day, we're all seeking for justice. So, Patricia, help us understand the impact these conviction integrity units have have made in accomplishing true justice. And that's getting people exonerated that haven't committed a crime, you know, pursuing after the real perpetrator. So I, I think to answer that question, I need to back up just a little bit. Yeah. Um, and let me say there are three concepts that come to my mind just in regard to this entire com- conversation. And that is, first, I, I'm going to tell you what they are, and then I'm going to explain them. What comes to mind is the idea of fear noble cause corruption and winning. And the reason why I highlight those words is because I think for far too long, our criminal justice system has operated under the idea of fear. We have all believed that the way that we prosecute crime in this country is we make everybody, including ourselves, fearful if we don't punish as severely as we can. That's number one. Number two, the noble cause corruption is something that I think most people that work in the system has suffered from at least once. And that is, we all like to believe as law enforcement that we wear the white hat and that our mission is to do justice and it is to take the dangerous criminal off the street. And because that is our mission, we think that it justifies the actions that we take. And all too often, 
some of the actions that we take are wrong. And we recognize now more than ever that those actions lead to sometimes and way more often than any of us want to believe convicting the wrong person. I said the last term that we have to think about is winning. And we also can't ignore the fact that prosecutors are lawyers. Lawyers typically have certain types of personalities. And a very important part of that is the desire to be right and to win. And too often we define being right and winning wrong. If you think about all of those, and then you now look at the fact that we have 45 conviction integrity units in this country, you've got to say maybe we are recognizing that the terms that I've just all laid out don't really have a proper place in our system, at least not like they've had for decades. So to get to the question, what have conviction integrity units accomplished? They've accomplished a lot. Everybody has to understand that although it is interesting and our communities are engaged in the storytelling of an innocent person sitting in prison for a crime they didn't commit, they've also got to understand that in addition to sorting that out for lots of people, we also are able to accomplish a very important criminal justice purpose, and that is when we exonerate the person who did not commit the crime, often the investigation and the evidence that we have obtained and uncovered lead us to the true perpetrator of the crime. So there is an incredibly important circle that gets closed, Mm -hmm. and you cannot ignore that. And finally, just to kind of close out the answer to that question, it is so important to talk about victims, and we've talked a little bit about them. Yes, it's difficult to talk to victims. It's difficult to figure out how do you tell them that you got the wrong person, but it is crucial because what we've got to understand is it's not just the wrongful incarcerated individual who has suffered, but the victim has been re-victimized by the the fault in our system. And so we've got to understand that they are an important part of this process. We've got to include them in it, and we've got to make sure that the conversation is wider than just the individual who went to prison. Um, And so Conviction integrity units, I think, understand that, and they make sure that closing that circle is important. And at the end of the day, I think that a lot of the work that the units have done have actually been kind of the precipitation of criminal justice reform in general. So I think that there's a lot to be proud of in terms of the work these folks are doing. Thank you. So, Mark, for communities that don't have the resources to create a conviction integrity unit, how can they still address the this problem? I think it's uh, it starts out with just changing the mindset, right? Once you realize there's a problem, not act, do something about it. And um, I, I stated previously uh, to, to the panel where my predecessor, his number one rule was you object. You object to anyone who says that they're wrongfully convicted. You try to prevent them from getting another day in court and thus not even looking or evaluating the, the facts or the evidence. You can start by getting rid of those archaic rules, uh, just 
Yes, I'm not going to object. I'm going to give them an opportunity. I'm going to review the evidence. I'm going to train my prosecutors not to be so adversarial and so focused on winning or supporting a conviction, but more so making sure that the conviction that we have holds integrity. You do that by looking at cases, reviewing the files, not automatically objecting, as well as giving the prosecutors in your office the opportunity to look at these cases and to talk to the the officers who were involved. And, you know, then you can get into, if you have the fundings, creating an entire unit. But for Kansas uh, and Wyandotte County, our first exoneration, we didn't have a conviction unit, but it led us to get one. Well, thank you all for your time. We really appreciate you helping us understand better the role of conviction integrity units and the need for them. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod. 